Good morning again, Heights folks. How are you today? Well, hey, I'm glad you're all here. We know many of you had a tumultuous week this week. Those of you living out Highway 69 had a week you'd rather not relive, I'm sure. But we are very glad that you're here. We're glad that life seems to be moving back in a direction of normal. So thank you all for who responded. Thank you all who gave and went to the evacuation center. And yes, Heights was very present in a moment of need in our community. We're glad about that. And we are so grateful for our firefighters and our first responders. Is that true? Those folks are amazing. Amazing. Well, friends, I think if you've been around here a while, you know my family spent a lot of time in the nation of France, uh, about a year and a half on our way to Africa, and then ten year, nine years after that. Uh, and I, we loved pretty much everything about France. It had some challenges, but we loved living there. Uh, our youngest daughter was born there. We, we have wonderful memories. But as I look back on that season of my life, I can say without doubt it was the loneliest time of my life. There were a lot of reasons for that. Uh, One is the cultural difference. It's difficult, challenging to make friends across cultural differences. The language difference was there. I was fluent in French and still am, but still, to get really to the heart issues in a second language is not especially easy. I had a couple of practical reasons uh, that made finding friends more complicated. Uh, When I got to France, I was fairly active in sports. I played basketball on the town team and I played tennis. Those are very social sports. But I, my back gave me trouble, and so I went from basketball and tennis to swimming, which is not exactly a social event, right? Uh, musically, I changed during this season of my life. I, I arrived there playing guitar and still did, but during my time, I took up the Celtic harp, believe it or not, in France. I am a six-foot-four-inch harper. Uh, and, and as much as I love the harp, it's not exactly a social instrument. You, you're sitting around the house, no one says, hey, get the harp, we'll jam a little bit, you know? <laughs> That's just, that just doesn't happen, okay? So it's, a, it's beautiful, and I loved it. It gives me something in common with King David, by the way, in this series we're studying. But it doesn't exactly create opportunities for social interaction. And so all these things combined to make it really difficult for me to find good, close friends during that nine-year period of my life. To the point where I remember at one point, I remember the first time I did this, There was a movie that came out, and a couple people that I would go to movies with weren't available. My wife wasn't interested. So for the first time in my life, I went to a movie by myself. And that was a little strange. It it felt maybe you've done it, maybe you haven't, but for me, it was a new experience. It felt a little odd. And though I was glad to see the movie, it kind of underlined the problem that I was having at that time in my life of really finding good, deep friendships. And it was made all the harder by the fact that I was pastoring a a French church and we were doing Bible studies. And I knew, and I was glad for this, that the Bible talked a lot about friendship. We did a series on Proverbs in my French church and came up to verses like this, Proverbs 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for a time of adversity. I had some of that adversity over the years, as you could imagine, nine years. Anywhere you have ups and downs. I could have used one of those brothers who was born, and they were hard to find. There's a friend, Proverbs 18 says, who sticks closer than a brother. You know, I'm glad the Bible is practical. I'm glad the Bible touches these parts of our lives. But in that season of my life, presenting me with verses like this was like showing a picture of a sizzling steak to a hungry man. I wanted it, but I couldn't eat the picture. I I, I wanted those friendships, but they weren't provided. And, And it made it tough. It made it tough to walk through some of the challenges of that season of my life. And because of that, I found myself a little jealous of King David in the passage we're going to look at today. Because we'll study friendship today. 
We'll be looking at a friendship presented in the life of King David and the pages of Scripture that is iconic in terms of friendships. It is the example in the Bible of a good friend, that one-on-one connection that we all yearn for and miss when we don't have it. And this friendship David had with a man named Jonathan was so significant uh, and has become such a well-known friendship that everywhere we've served, my wife has prayed that I would have a Jonathan kind of friend. And she prayed that for me the whole time we were in France, and God never provided it. He had other goals for me at that time in my life, other things he wanted me to learn about him. And we'll touch on that before this study of David today is over. Here's the big idea that might give you a hint of where we're going today. God created us to need friends, to be a friend, and to see him as the ultimate friend. Lord, would you impress that on us through your word today? Would you teach us through the example of the man after your own heart so that we can know you better as our ultimate friend? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, folks, this story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 18. It's the story of David and Jonathan, as I said. And let me give you the context of what we're going to look at today. David is about to head into the most challenging period of his life, way beyond anything I was facing in France 20 years ago. King David, as we know from last week's study, had just killed a giant. He had just stepped up and done something nobody else would do. And the good news was... That David, the man after God's own heart, killed this enemy of Israel. The bad news was, he did it when King Saul should have done it. Like John said last week, this amazing event, this amazing heroic moment was provided by the pizza delivery boy. And it should have been done by King Saul himself. And the after effects of that, the contrast between King Saul staying in his tent when this evil giant was taunting the army of Israel... And then little David stepping out and taking him on and winning, well, you can imagine that had implications. And right away, David's star was rising. People began singing his praises, literally singing songs, comparing him and King Saul. And King Saul heard these songs about David, about Saul killing his thousands and David killing his ten thousands. And Saul even more began to see David as a threat. He knew he'd been fired, but he'd not yet been replaced. And here along comes this little guy, this runt, this, this unknown from Bethlehem, who suddenly is famous as a warrior. And Saul begins seeing him as a competitor, as a threat. And so Saul kind of invites, he's already been inviting him in to be part of the court uh, through his musical skills, but he, he, he watches him even closer. He keeps an eye on this guy. At one point, in a fit of rage, Saul tries to kill him, and it doesn't work. Happily, the spear misses. So Saul elevated him, promoted him to a position of great military responsibility, sending him out to fight dangerous battles, no doubt hoping that sooner or later David would be killed. Instead, David won every single time. And again, he's getting more and more famous as a warrior and as a leader. And Saul says, okay, I'm going to offer you my daughter's hand in marriage, but there's a bride price. You have to do something to earn your way into being my son-in-law. We won't talk about what that bride price was. It's kind of cringeworthy and it's kind of gross. But let's just say David did really well. He did beyond what was asked of him. And there again, the Bible says in, in, in 1 Samuel, Saul's worried about this guy. In fact, he begins to hate this guy, David, and he becomes David's enemy for the rest of his life. So friends, 1 Samuel chapter 18 shows that life is about to get harder 
for the man after God's own heart. Please, let's not have any illusions that the idea of becoming a person after God's own heart means our life gets simple. It means our life is, is easy. It's all downhill. It's relaxing. It's pleasant. No. The man after God's own heart had a rough road that he was forced to travel. And we'll talk a little bit about that road today. Now, God, as if God says, David, you're going to need something in this next season of your life. It's going to get really tough. I'm going to provide you with a friend like you've never had before. And at the beginning of chapter 18 of 1 Samuel, we see this friendship, this connection happen between David and none other than the son of King Saul, the prince of Israel, a man named Jonathan. It's revealed in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. There's already this, this connection happens. There's this unique unity between these two men. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. Saul wants to keep an eye on this guy, David, especially as his friendship grows with his son, Jonathan. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, friends, in our culture, as we look at this friendship developing and see this gesture on the part of Jonathan, well, okay, it seems interesting. It seems kind of unexpected, maybe, but you have to put yourself back in those days and understand who this man is who's doing this. See, Jonathan is the prince. He's the next king of Israel. And all these elements of his clothing, his robe and his sword and his belt, these are the symbols of his royalty. Nobody else had what he had, and it set him apart as the next king of Israel. And now, because of this friendship, because of this commitment he has, he makes his covenant with David and really says through this gesture, I know who you are. I know that you are, not me, you are the next king of Israel. Friends, can you imagine what that must have meant for David? You see, David knew that he was set apart by God for the ne- to be the next king. We studied that three weeks ago. We saw the day when the prophet Samuel came to his home and said no to all of his brothers, and David came in from the field, and David was the guy. And the oil was poured on him. And the most spiritual man in the nation said, God has chosen you. You've got a destiny. But ever since that day, what has David been hearing? Well, he's been hearing, you're a shepherd. Go back with the sheep. You're a musician. Come play music when the king needs you. Okay, you're a giant killer. That's good. You're a military man. You're the king's son-in-law. But nobody else has been saying to him what God had said to him. And even though it was getting better, and even though the descriptions were growing in significance... As far as we can tell, this is the first time anyone has repeated to David what he heard that day in his house when the prophet said, you're going to be king. Now, this friend, this man Jonathan, who is sacrificing his own position in saying it because he should be the next king by human standards. The royalty is passed on through family. That's, that's the deal, right? This is the progression. It should be Jonathan. This is his privilege. This is his power and his authority and his riches. Because being a king was a pretty good gig. And he's saying, no, David, that's you. 
David is hearing now for the first time someone else say what God had already said to him. He's hearing someone else describe him the way God had already described him. Now, this friendship is born here in the first four verses of 1 Samuel 18. Let's talk briefly about where it goes from there. In chapter 19, uh, in, in a fit of rage, King Saul is once again going to try to kill David. He's had it with this threat, with this competitor. Jonathan steps in, talks his dad out of killing his friend, becomes the advocate for David, and goes so far as br- to bring the two together. David had fled, and Jonathan said, no, it's safe, come home again. And there's some level of apparent unity restored in the royal household. And that's pretty good. But in chapter 20, it's going to get bad again. Again, King Saul is chasing after David, and David is running for his life. And he knows he could be killed at any moment. And he comes back to his friend Jonathan and says, What what have I done? Why is your dad going to kill me? If I'm going to die, Jonathan, you kill me. I'd rather die at your hands than the hands of your dad. And Jonathan says, hold still, let me go find out if what you're saying is true, because Saul had hidden from his son this time what his plans were. And Jonathan confronts his father again as David's advocate. And, and, and again, Saul admits, yes, I'm gonna, in fact, he tries to kill Jonathan as well. And Jonathan and David have this emotional farewell, a little ritual they set up with arrows in a field and, and, and bows, and it's a little complicated to go into, but it was a chance for Jonathan to to acknowledge, yeah, David, you're right. You need to flee. You need to run. And so David did, protected by his friend Jonathan. They will only see each other one more time in their lives. In chapter 23, once again, King Saul is chasing David through caves, and he's after this competitor, and he's just, he's he's, a maniac. And Jonathan goes around his father, finds David on his own, And Scripture says he helped his friend David find strength in God in the most challenging time of his life. That would be the last time they would see one another. So friends, this friendship mattered. This friendship made a difference in both of their lives. And I want us to look and see what this friendship is made up of. I want us to look and see what describes this David-Jonathan friendship. Well, first of all, we've already seen these words. Jonathan said, it said about the two, we are one in spirit. Jonathan could say this about David. We've got a unity that's unique and different. I love you as I love myself. It's a powerful phrase that actually became the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as you love who? Yourself. And about this friend, about this connection, Jonathan said, well, that's easy. It's easy for me to love you as I love myself because we have this friendship, this connection. Jonathan says, I see you the way God sees you. You're the next king. I know it. I don't dispute it. I don't struggle against it. What God told you is true about you. And then lastly, I will serve you sacrificially to make God's promises come true in your life. Rather than hang on to my own privilege and my own power, I will set aside what's best for me because I want what's best for you. And I will sacrifice myself so that what God has promised you will come true. Now that's the way this friendship was described 3,000 years ago. If we were to experience a similar level of friendship, if we were to have a David-Jonathan friendship today, how might we describe it? What kind of terms might we use? Well, let's go through them one at a time. 
We might say we are one in spirit. Chances are, though, we'd say something like, man, we've got a connection that's just, I can't describe. It doesn't matter how much time we spend apart or how far we, we, we live from each other. When we see one another again, it, we pick up where we left off. You and I, we've got this connection. This We're together in ways I don't have with anybody else. I can't explain it. It's even hard to describe it. But when we're together, there's this unity that I don't have with just everybody. We might say, I love you as I love myself, but chances are good. We might use other terms like, man, your pains are my pains. When you cry, I cry. Because that's who we are. That's what our friendship is like. Your wins are my wins. And when you celebrate, I celebrate because that's, just, that's what our friendship is all about. If we were having this kind of friendship today, I hope we'll be able to say, I see you the way God sees you, my friend. Yeah, chances are you see yourself in many ways as a loser and a failure and a disappointment and somebody who falls short all the time. And you're carrying that guilt around. You're carrying that burden around. But you know what? If you're talking to a fellow Christ follower, I see you the way God sees you. Don't you know Jesus died for that? Don't you understand that's washed away? Don't you understand God has taken a a sponge and wiped your slate clean because Jesus died for that failure? Your failures don't define you. Your sin doesn't define you. God's grace defines you. God's forgiveness defines you. That's who you are thanks to him. You, you probably feel like you've got nothing to offer. You feel like because you've blown it, because you don't feel very skilled, you feel like, no, oh, i got nothing. But I know the Bible says you've got something to offer. That God has a plan and he's equipped you specially to provide something, to play a role in what he's trying to do. I want you to see yourself the way God sees you as a gifted person who has something to offer the people around you. I want you to see yourself the way God sees you, not as somebody who's insignificant, but as a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. Because our Father is the King, and He's in charge, and we are His princes and His princesses. That's both a privilege and a responsibility. What's it mean? I don't know. Let's discover together. Let's find out what it means to be a child of God. Let's find out what a child of God looks like and sounds like in the world we live in. That kind of encouragement. A a friend who says, I see you the way God sees you, is irreplaceable. And what if we had a friend who said, I will serve you sacrificially to make God's promises come true in your life. I will sacrifice my time. I will sacrifice my energy. I will do what's needed so that what God has promised to you will come true. Jonathan did that for David. We can do that today for one another. And I will sacrifice my time because I love you that much and I know God has said some things about you and I can't wait to see them happen. Sometimes that conversation will take the form of encouragement, like chapter 23 when Jonathan helped David find strength in the Lord. Sometimes that's what we need to hear. Sometimes it takes the form of confrontation. Sometimes that person who, who we love, we're, we're willing to say, to have a hard conversation. One of the things that is also said about friendships in Proverbs is that the wounds of a friend are faithful. And sometimes to help someone grow, we need to sit down and have the hard conversation. Say, you know, there's a part of your life, my friend, that if it changed, think how much better your life would be. 
If this problem went away or, or this discipline became stronger or, or this sin got, got dealt with and I love you enough to have the hard conversation with you and not gloss by it. Friends, that's all part of sacrificially loving a friend. And that's what a Jonathan-David friendship looks like. It's what it can look like. And I want to ask you two questions. First of all, do you have a friend like this? Don't answer out loud. Some of you are nodding already. That's great. Do you have a Jonathan kind of friend? If you do, chances are you're smiling right now and you're glad for that. And why not tell them? <laughs> why not let them know? It's an encouraging thing. I did that yesterday with my Jonathan friend. Why not let them know that that's the role they're playing in your life? If your answer is, no, I don't think I do have that kind of a friend, you're probably asking yourself why, as I did for nine years in France. I'll get to a possible reason for that in just a minute. But I don't just want to ask, do you have a friend like this? I want to ask the harder question of all of us, me included. Are you a friend like this? Are you one who is determined to be for the people around you, this kind of a connection, this kind of a friend? You're not going to have it with 25 different people. I don't expect that. But among those who you are closest to, do you want to be this kind of person with God's help? Do you want to have that connection of being one in spirit? Are you willing to love them as you love yourself? Are you ready to serve sacrificially? Are you ready to tell them, I see you the way God does? It's one thing to say, do you have a friend like this? But it's a little more close to the bone to ask, are you a friend like this? It's a good commitment to make today. To say, God, make me a Jonathan for somebody in the midst of praying, Lord, give me a Jonathan, that's fine. That's a great prayer. But why not add to it, Lord, make me a Jonathan for somebody. Now, there's another side to this. A side that, I have to admit, doesn't come naturally to me. It amazes me, and, and I have to force myself on some level to go there, that God uses this kind of language when he talks about us. That God uses friendship terminology when he talks about the creatures that he's made, me and you. It blows my mind that God would say of Abraham, he is a friend of God. That God would seek that level of intimacy and connection. It makes me smile, but it kind of amazes me that in John 15, Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Because I reveal everything my father has said. Folks, I don't go there naturally. I, I, I got to admit this. I can picture God as my Lord, yes. My master, yeah, creator, piece of cake. Savior, definitely. But it, it seems presumptuous on my part to call him my friend. And if he didn't call himself that, I, 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 I couldn't. It would be too big a stretch for me. It would be, oh, Lord, yeah, me and you. Or I, I wouldn't, it would feel so wrong. And yet he does. The Bible makes it clear. So I have to, as a Bible believer, push myself on the mat. Some of you go there more naturally. Some of you easily, oh yeah, Jesus is my friend. I admire you. <laughs> okay, Me, I've got to push myself a little bit. But when we push ourselves, when I push myself, here's what I find out. Jesus qualifies amazingly as a Jonathan kind of friend, doesn't he? Does not Jesus do all of these things? Does not Jesus say to us, we are one in spirit? 
In fact, that he gives us his Holy Spirit so we could have this connection, so he could always be with us, so there'd be this oneness and this unity. Does not Jesus say, I love you as I love myself? He told us to be those kinds of people, and I'm so glad that God doesn't tell us to do what he's not willing to do. I'm glad before he commands us to do something, he's already doing it. He is loving us. He does love us as he loves himself. I'm so glad Jesus sees us the way God sees us. He went out of his way when he was living among us to hang out with the people who figured they were worthless in God's eyes. That's why he hung out with the tax collectors. That's why he hung out with the riffraff and the people who saw themselves as nothing and were told they were nothing by others. Jesus said, hey, you who think you're worthless, you're the one I want to be with. You're the one I want to eat with. Yours is the house I want to stay at. You are the one I want to spend time with. And the 12 people he spent the most time with were, in the eyes of everybody else, and most likely in their own eyes, not much. And he says, follow me. I'm going to change the world through you. Amazing. And then he says to those people, I call you my friends. He sees us the way God sees us. And when it comes to serving sacrificially to make God's promises come true in our life, who does that more than Jesus? He sacrificed himself. He said, greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his who? Friends. Oh, goosebumps right there. He laid down his life for people he saw. His language. As friends. People, can I ask you, can you see Jesus as this kind of friend? Can you relate to him on this level? Can you embrace his terms for himself in your life? I hope you can. In France, I couldn't. And all of my wife's prayers for nine years that God would provide a human, Jonathan, went unanswered. No, that's not right. They were answered. God was saying, I believe, to me and to my wife at that time of my life, I don't want to provide him that kind of friend. I want to be that kind of friend. And frankly, I didn't get it. And God did me the favor of withholding that friend for all those years. And I came back to the U.S. and I had more connections and and more abilities to build those kind of friendships. But it wasn't until recently in my life that I began relating to Jesus this way. That I began not just realizing, but relaxing in and reveling in the idea that he wants this kind of relationship with me. And I began looking forward to my times with him, not because I was checking a box that I needed to, to check in order to be a spiritual pastor. I needed to spend time with God because if I don't, then I can't do my job, so I might as well. It wasn't that. He goes, Lord, I can't wait to spend time with you. I'm eager to go on a walk with you. I want to put the rest of my life aside because hanging out with you is the best. And I still remember the day, and I call these Sabbath hikes, I've talked about them before. I still remember the day I was driving to one and I had this sense that I couldn't wait to get there. I couldn't wait to find the trailhead and turn on my music and start walking and thinking and praying and I couldn't wait to get there. And I had this deep sense that God was looking forward to it too. 
that my father, who also wants to be my friend, would say to me, yeah, Mike, let's go for a walk. Let's spend some time together. Let's push aside the headaches and the hassles and the stress and the problems. Why don't you come and rest with me? God did me the favor of not providing that Jonathan friend for nine years and longer until I realized that that's the role he wanted to play in my life. So friends, if your answer to the question earlier, do you have a Jonathan friend, if it was no, I'm not presumptuous enough to guarantee why that is. There could be a lot of reasons, but I know one could be Jesus wants to do that for you. And he knows if he provides you a living, breathing human friend like that, that might get in the way. (laughs) That might scratch an itch that he doesn't want scratched in that way. Maybe he wants to take you to a new level of intimate connection to him. Maybe he wants you to find in him some of what you're looking for and lonely about. I don't know that for sure. But please, I'm not reading minds and I have no, I'm not, no prophet up here. But can I encourage you to at least consider the possibility? And that if you're waiting for a Jonathan friend, can you invest some time in that wait? Let's say, okay, Lord, how can I deepen what I have with you? How can what I, the connection I have with you meet some of the needs that aren't being met by human beings today? So friends, that's one question I want to ask you. Can you see Jesus this way? The next question is really tough. I had to ask it myself on a drive this week. I, I didn't get a chance to hike this week because a lot of reasons, but I went for a long drive and I chewed over this kind of stuff and The question I had to ask myself isn't just what kind of friend is Jesus to me, but we had to ask the other side of the coin. Remember when he talked about Jonathan friends, human ones? I I said, don't just have one, be one. I had to ask myself, what kind of a friend am I to Jesus? If this is who he is to me, does he not deserve great commitment on my part? Does he not deserve a lot of faithfulness from me? frankly, more than I tend to give him. If he's poured out his life to restore this relationship with me, should I not be treasuring that in a way that any thought or any action or any temptation that comes across my radar screen that would weaken that, should I not be running away from that? Because whatever pleasure that gives, it's nothing compared to what I get from him. And why would I threaten a attention, a, 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 a temporary rupture in this relationship. Did go do that? Are you kidding me? What a waste. Friends, we are called, we are created to need friends. And yes, I, it's, great, it's wonderful to pray for a Jonathan kind of friend because we need those. And it's wonderful to be a friend and to ask God, Lord, would you make me that kind of person? that kind of friend for the people you put in my life. And we are created to see our God in the person of Jesus Christ as our ultimate friend and to treasure and cultivate and protect and rest in that relationship. Let's pray. Lord God, I have to admit the term, even now after this sermon, the term catches a little bit in my throat. 
Thank you for being my Lord and my master and my creator and my savior. And thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being our friend, for everyone who's bowed the knee to you. Lord, thank you for providing some of those Jonathan friendships around us. And I thank you for the ones in my life that matter to me. But Lord, thank you for that season when you withheld it until I would find what I needed in you. Lord, might that be true of all of us? Would you build that connection? Would you build that love and that tenderness? Would you show us that you are that kind of friend and help us commit to being that kind of friend to you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.